All right, I know we still got people coming in, but we're gonna go ahead and get started, guys. We got a lot to go through, so let's go ahead and we'll open up in prayer, and then we'll get into a little bit of church history. It'll be good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your loving kindness, for your marvelous grace. We thank you that you are from everlasting to everlasting, and that for whatever reason you saw fit to to create us, to create man, and uh, we thank you that um, that we get to be a part of your story. And we pray that we would be uh, we would be bringing you glory and honor in everything we do. We know that. Uh, it's in you that we live and move and have our being. We can do nothing apart from you. We thank you for who we are in you. We thank you for uh, the, the men and women who've gone before us throughout church history. We pray that you would help us to learn from them, to grow and to mature and to uh, just to please you in all that we think, say, and do. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we've been going through church history for the last three weeks. We're going to wrap up today and next week we'll jump into something new. But let's go ahead and look at a, a little bit of review. Well, Jeremy gets me louder for you guys. Um, and let's just start off by kind of brainstorming why church history is a, a benefit for us. Why, why is church history a good thing? What do we learn and gain from church history? Jerry. History is important to help us guard against our own stupidity. We have a lot of that, don't we? Yes. And to understand what the first like mission was, the first statement was. When, when there's an original something, you usually have a statement of what you represent the mission of what your purpose is for the foundation of that. Yeah. So to understand that is the core. Yeah, good. And a lot of times those will be good things. They'll be uh, the ideal things, uh, especially when it's coming from the mouth of Christ or the disciples. And then sometimes there are going to be things that we can and should improve upon. But it's always good to recognize what came before us, right? Any other thoughts? Why why study church history? Well, without a, you've got to have that background and so on to do it, or you don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. How can you relate what this is and, and say, yeah, it's in fact happened because this happened, this occurred, you know? And so I wish I would pay more attention to that when I was in school, but yeah. I'm not, you know? I'm right there with you, man. I, I thought uh, Columbus was just, you know, some Italian out wandering around in a motorboat or something. But <laughs> <laughs> I found out yep. that it wasn't. So it's good to have Not quite. that background, that knowledge of what took place first. Good. And what are some things that we need to be on guard against when studying church history? What are some pitfalls that we could fall into? Yes. Yeah, they were learning for the first time, right? Um, they're trying to figure it out, and in a lot of ways, we are truly standing on the shoulders of giants, and we need to uh, be a little bit more gracious and compassionate with them than we often are. Um, yeah. Anything else? Maybe we could um, 
pay too much attention to stuff that we shouldn't be and not be studying the stuff that we should be studying. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or giving too much weight to, yes, that's a better to church history over God's living inspired word, right? A lot of people have fallen into that trap. Church history is beneficial, like we talked about. It's good to know where we came from and to know some of the pitfalls that people have fallen into in the past, uh, to know the trajectory for the Christian faith. But we can definitely fall into the, the trap of uh, elevating them and even worshiping them, venerating them when they're not inspired. Their words aren't inspired. They're not God-breathed. And so we need to make that distinction between the Word of God and church history, which is beneficial though it's not infallible, right? All right, well, last three weeks we've gone through several characters or uh, pieces of writing in church history. Do you guys remember anything you've learned over the last three weeks? No. No, yeah. That's what I was afraid of because that's where I am a lot of time. All these people kind of mesh together and all this stuff just kind of blends. I have a hard time with church history keeping people and stories and uh, different eras distinct. So let's go through and do a little bit of review of where we've been. Uh, we looked at the Didache on our first week of church history. And the Didache is a collection of the apostles' teaching that was likely from their disciples. And I kind of think of it as a Christian word of wisdom, right? Uh, if you're familiar with the word of wisdom in the, the LDS context, uh, it's kind of like along those lines. It has some recommendations. You should do these things. And these are some of the practices of the Christian church, the early Christian church. We also looked at Clement of Rome. Today we're going to be looking at Clement of Alexandria, two different guys. So this guy, Clement of Rome, he wrote to the church at Corinth, uh, which is kind of interesting because we just got done going through Corinthians, and here shortly we're going to look at Corinthians again. Uh, and he affirmed the deity of Christ all throughout, which is really important because he was super early. He was a contemporary in many respects with the apostles. And also he made... a distinction between the unique authority of the apostles and himself. He didn't present himself as having apostolic authority. We looked at Ignatius. Ignatius was a bishop at Antioch, Syria. He was a disciple of John, which is pretty cool to know that we have writings from somebody who was uh, a friend, a disciple. He walked along and hung out with the apostle John, and he fought against Docetism and Judaism. Um, he's fighting these different heresies that are rising up in the church. We looked at Polycarp. Polycarp wrote to the Philippians. He was also a disciple of John. Uh, he argued against um, different people as well. And he died like a boss, right? He was mentally prepared to die. He knew he was going to, to be martyred. And he's the one who said, away with the atheists, right? Pointing to the crowd, he's saying, I'm not going to recant. You guys are the atheists. You guys need to recant. And he ended up um, being martyred for his faith. Then last week, we looked at Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr had a philosophical bent towards apologetics. He wrote the first and second apology. And he incorporated Greek philosophy in his defense of the faith, trying to help other people come to an understanding of Christianity. We'll see a little bit of that today with a couple of men we're going to be looking at. And then we also looked at Irenaeus. Irenaeus, he was quite the apologist. He argued against the Ebonites, the 
Marcionites, and the Gnostics. And he was also a disciple of Polycarp. So Polycarp was a disciple of John, and Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. So that's where we've been, and today we're going to be looking at three different men. We're going to be looking at Tertullian, at Clement of Alexandria, and at Origen. So let's jump in and take a look at Tertullian. Tertullian lived from 160 to 225, so he's a little bit later. Um, and he was born into a, a pagan home in Carthage. So uh, Carthage is a pretty important city. Uh, it is in Africa, and it is part of the Western Church. So that's pretty important. And uh, Tertullian was known as a, the father of Latin theology. And so uh, that's really one thing that sets apart the Eastern Church from the Western Church, is that they taught in Latin. Uh, so there's a, he was the first one to teach in Latin. And over here we'll talk a little bit about the, the Eastern Church a little bit later. And the Eastern Church... Uh, they were still teaching in, and writing in Greek. So Tertullian was the father of Latin theology, the first to write in Latin. Uh, he, uh, again, he was born in Carthage. His father was in the Roman military, and Carthage was under Roman control as he was teaching. And he was a, a brilliant man. He studied law and medicine. He was fluent in both Greek and Latin. He was a, a bright dude. Um, and he was, the, again, the father of Latin theology. He was the first to use terms like Trinity and Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, he had hundreds of different words that he kind of invented and created and he brought into the Latin language. And I want to read to you guys from this book. This is a, a fun children's book that we have in our house. The Church History ABCs by Stephen Nichols and... Uh, Ned Bustard, and he writes about Tertullian in here, and it's really simple and basic, and I really just wanted to read it to highlight this book and how you guys might be able to use it for your kids. Um, T that's kind of cool. S. Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Tertullian. T is for turban, triangle, and Tertullian, and he's got a little turban there. <laughs> says that my full name is Quintus Septimi Septimius Florence Tertullianus, but you can call me Tertullian. <laughs> I was born in AD 150 in Carthage on the northern coast of Africa. When I was really old, at age 40, I became a Christian. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't write the book. Pick it up with Stephen Nichols. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, it's a kid's book. <laughs> All right, it says, I quickly became a theologian, someone who studies the Bible and teaches others about God. I coined a very important term, the word Trinity. This word means that God is one in being and three in persons. God is three in one. It can be tricky, but it is important truth. I wrote many books, all devoted to pursuing the truth that is found in God's word. Try saying this ten times. Tertullian tells the truth. But not right now. But that's a, a fun little kid's book. 
um, just kind of giving brief explanations of some of the people in church history. And I think it's pretty cool that they're already getting into the doctrine of the Trinity, which can be tricky, but I think our kids are able to understand that. So uh, his articulation of the Trinity, God being one in substance or in being, one in essence, and three in persons, it was adapted and used in the Nicene Creed in 325 and 381. That's a, a good way to explain the Trinity and has been held on to. It's held the, the test of time. All right. Um, some of the writings of Tertullian, as Stephen Nichols said, he did a lot of writing. And um, I just want to read some of these to you. So in his work, The Apology, where he defends Christianity to the Roman governor and argued um, a couple of different things. We see here that, first of all, he argued that Christians were loyal citizens of the empire. So he's saying, look, we're, we're doing a good job. We're not fighting against you. We're obeying the laws. Um, just leave us alone because we're loyal to what we've been called to. We're going to be good citizens. But then he goes on and he says uh, that even if you do persecute us, persecution fails to defeat them. And every time the Christians are persecuted, their number just simply increases, continually increases. Um, so he's, he's really doing the work of the community, talking for the community, for the church community, against the, the governors, against the empire itself. And he does a lot of that throughout his work. He also um, argues against other folks, other different religions who are coming up against Christianity. We see this in um, his work, what is it called? Uh, Tertullian's Defense Against the Christians, Tertullian's Defense of the Christians Against the Heathens. And he is, he's kind of snarky sometimes. He's definitely sarcastic. He's a satirist. Um, he's not only sharp-minded, but sharp-tongued. And we see that here in uh, this writing. In chapter 37 of his defense of the Christians against the heathen, he says, we are but of yesterday. And that was the, the argument against Christianity. Christianity is just young. We have all these older religions. And he says, yeah, we are young. We're just of yesterday. Yet, we have filled all that is yours, cities and islands, fortified towns, country towns, centers of meeting, even camps, tribes, classic, classes of public attendance, the palace, the senate, the forum. We have left you only your temples. And so he kind of embraces that and he says, yeah, we're young, but, but we're winning. So suck it up and deal with it, right? So he's fighting against the empire. He's fighting against all these other different faiths and religions who are uh, combating Christianity, trying to disprove and uh, disown Christianity for being young. And then he also has some in-camp uh, writings, some writings that he writes to other Christians and some disagreements that he has there. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at um, Ignatius. And he is writing and he's um, questioning Ignatius a little bit on his understanding of leadership within the church. Remember this quote from Ignatius trying to lift up and elevate the, um, the bishop. He says in Magnesians 3, it is not right to presume on the youthfulness of your bishop. You ought to respect him. And that's where it should have stopped. But he went on, he said, you ought to respect him as fully as you respect the authority of God the Father. And uh, we talked about how, yes, it's good to respect authority, but that's definitely too far. It's unbalanced. And Tertullian recognized that and realized that, and he wrote against that a little bit. He says, are we not all laymen priests also? 
it is written, he hath made us kings and priests. So Tertullian saw some of that um, overcorrection on the part of Ignatius and wrote against it. And we can see even here in the, the second century that we have this disagreement between how a, a church should operate and should be run. We're still having this disagreement today. Should a church be elder-ran or elder-led? Or should it be a, a congregational church? And they're having the same disagreement clear back here in the, the second century. So, again, another reason why it's good to go back and look at church history because there's nothing new under the sun. We're still dealing with a lot of the same issues, same problems. And a lot of these things have already been dealt with and not necessarily settled, but uh, a lot of things have been settled. A lot of the heresies that have come up and sprung up throughout church history have been addressed and settled uh, by people who've come before us. He wrote his most famous and probably important work was his five books that he wrote arguing against the teachings of Marcion. We spent a little bit of time last week looking at Marcionism, or what the Marcionites believe. Does anybody remember what they hold to? All right, Jeremy, do you remember? Or? Yes. Okay. They pitted the Old Testament against the New Testament. Yes. Uh, particularly pitted everything besides Luke and Paul against Luke and Paul. Yep. And even that, he went through and he kind of cut up Luke and Paul and only used parts of Luke and Paul. That is Marcion, not Tertullian. Um, and Marcionites, they even went to the extent of saying that there are two different gods. There's a god of the Old Testament and a completely separate god of the New Testament. And that's something we still see and hear a little bit today, right? And not only that, but he said that Jesus was the son of the New Testament God, not the son of the Old Testament God, which is a bit of a problem, right? right. <laughs> Just a little bit. Well, I'm glad that we can recognize it. That's a, a little bit, at least, of a problem. Um, and then he also, out of that, he said that he didn't see Jesus as the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. So, if which is consistent with his position, but it's completely wrong. If you're starting off with a wrong premise, you're going to end up in a wrong spot. So if he's saying there's a different God of the Old Testament, different God of the Old, New Testament, the God of the Old Testament promised a Messiah. And... Jesus isn't the son of that God, so we're still looking for a Messiah according to Marcionism, right? Well, this is what Tertullian said, yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to fight against that. And he did. Uh, but he, in fighting against this, he kind of went a little bit too far. He sought to highlight the unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in doing this, he introduces in his teaching a replacement theology saying that, well, Israel is now the church. The church has become Israel and replaced Israel. And he's making all different kinds of connections between the Old Testament and New Testament that um, he's that aren't derived from exegeting the text. He's kind of adding stuff to combat Marcionism. And he has a, a good motive in doing that, but again, he just goes a little bit too far. And now we, we have to remember, whenever we're looking at anybody in church history, that there's no clear Christian bloodline, right? We've talked about this a little bit, how we kind of have a desire to look back and see, okay, well, who are the people who believe just like I believe? And no matter what you believe, you're not going to find that perfect line of people who believe exactly like you believe. There are going to be different people who believe some things that you believe and different people who um, are completely off in a, a completely different corner from where you would find yourself. And essentially, everybody 
uh, is trying to defend uh, their certain theological position, their theological particular, they can go and they can look at early church fathers and they can find some kind of support for their belief. No matter what you believe, you can go back and you can look and find somebody who can give a quote and you can say, okay, well, this person said such and such, and so therefore I'm justified in this belief. So that's a scary position to take. We don't want to make an argument based on authority if that authority isn't founded in the Word of God. That's why we have to make that distinction between the inspired word of God and church history, which again can be useful, but it's um, not infallible. We're kind of just picking and choosing when we do that, right? It's kind of like fantasy football, uh, just picking and choosing your different players. I have my team. My team's the, the 49ers, San Francisco 49ers, uh, except for a couple weeks ago when they lost to... Uh, Denver. That was Mark's team that lost to Denver. Uh, that was bad. But in, in fantasy football, I'll pick different players. I'll pick a running back from one team, quarterback, a wide receiver from another team. I'm just picking and choosing. And the team that I've formulated that I'm cheering for this year is not the same group of individuals that I was cheering for last year. Um, that's kind of what we're doing when we're going back and using church fathers to uh, defend our position. We're just picking and choosing, so we need to be careful with that. And we see that Tertullian, he was also the same. We're, we're never going to find one uh, church father, one historian who is, we can put them in the completely good camp versus a completely bad camp. Everybody's got a little bit of both. And Tertullian had his problem with theology as well. Uh, the foremost of which is probably that he said that the father shares his divine substance with the son. That the, the son, Jesus, he doesn't, he's not divine in and of himself. But just as the son, S-U-N, shares its light and its power with its rays, um, the father shares his divine nature with the son. That's a problem. He used that illustration of the son? Yes. Oh, wow. Yep. Which makes the son a creation. Not just like light and heat are a creation of the son that would make the son carried out to its logical conclusion, that illustration would make the Son a creation of the Father. I'm sure he wouldn't say that, but that's what that illustration Yeah, that Jesus doesn't have that divinity in and of himself. Um, that um, the Logos became a distinct person right before creation. So there wasn't the, the Logos, the, the word Jesus is not eternal, but he was created right before creation. So that's very similar to what Jehovah's Witnesses might say, um, which is not something we want to embrace, right? Uh, he also taught that Christians can only be married once, even if their spouse dies. And we have scripture that teaches the exact opposite. Uh, but he found some other portions of scripture, some other portions of Paul that he kind of grasped, grasped onto and he said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run with this. And he made a law where there is no law and that's not a good thing. Um, he said that serious post-baptismal sins can only be forgiven once. <laughs> that's not true, right? First of all, we have to define quote-unquote serious. What is a serious sin? Um, and to only be forgiven once, that's very legalistic. And Tertullian was very legalistic. I, I'd never get baptized then. That solves that problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that we can derive from this, one good thing is that we see the importance of baptism. So he wouldn't have accepted that excuse. He would say, no, if you don't get baptized, you're not a Christian. Because Christians were so closely identified with Christ by 
uh, their baptism. We see that even in the New Testament, they are called those who are baptized, the baptized ones. It's kind of synonymous with being a Christian. Uh, but he was very legalistic. And in fact, he was so legalistic that he converted to Montanism in 202. That is not a good thing. Montanism uh, is kind of messed up. Uh, they have three living prophets. They believe in new revelation. Uh, it's extremely legalistic. Um, yeah, that's what I put there. And very, very strict and legalistic. And a lot of people, it's definitely not an excuse, but maybe an explanation for why he embraced Montanism, because he saw the Christian church being so wayward and syncretistic and embracing these uh, other compromising uh, positions that he embraced Montanism. Now, Tertullian had a, a pretty big impact on Cyprian and Augustine. And they were over here in the, the Western church as well. So Cyprian and then Augustine. I'm sure that you guys have heard of Augustine. He's a pretty popular figure. And they're over in the West. And this is going to be distinct from the church in the East. That's a pretty big split between church history and some of the understanding, some of the philosophy that they embrace and they hold on to. So, um, before we move on, are there any thoughts or questions on Tertullian? All right. Well, we're going to get into those other two guys eventually, but before we do that, let's um, talk a little bit of philosophy. And uh, this is going to play pretty big into these last two guys. They're pretty big philosophers. Um, but I forgot to read for you from... Uh, this book, Christianity Through the Centuries by Cairns. And he goes through, this is a, a good book that I've read through a couple of times and used a lot in this study. He goes through and he talks about Western apologetics and what these guys in the West believe. He says that the Western apologetic writers laid a great emphasis on the distinctiveness and the finality of Christianity than they did on the similarities between the Christian faith and the pagan religions. So these guys, where did I put my marker? These guys over here, they emphasized exclusivity. They emphasized the exclusivity of uh, Christianity. And then these guys over here, again, they became a little bit more syncretistic, wanting to combine philosophy with Christianity and use the two together. So uh, before we get to them, uh, does anybody know what dualism is? Can anybody give me a brief definition of dualism? <clears throat> to something. To something, good. That's a good place to start. <laughs> to what? Um, basically that there's an eternal battle between good and evil. 